You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast on issues and innovations in women's health from the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. Our healthcare system mounted a rapid response to the COVID-19 pandemic in early 2020, which included pausing or delaying some non-essential or elective care, ramping up telehealth and video visits, and limiting in-person appointments for patient safety. It's May 20th now, and at least in Wisconsin, we're getting ready to loosen some restrictions and bring people back into clinics. On this episode, I talked to three doctors in the UW Department of OBGYN to learn more about safety precautions and changes to prenatal, obstetrical, general women's health, and gynecologic cancer care, as well as what's happening in the clinical research world. First, I talked with Dr. McCabe Williams about how general OBGYN care looks right now and what people can expect to be a little bit different on their next visit. I'd like to thank Dr. McCabe Williams for joining me today. She is the division director for our Division of Academic Specialists in Obstetrics and Gynecology. And we're going to talk about what it looks like to ramp up clinical activity after taking a long sort of pause during COVID-19. Thank you for being here. Jackie, thanks for having me and giving us an opportunity to talk about the care that we're able to provide at our UW-OBGYN generalist clinics. I really wanted to talk to you because your generalist clinics cover so many different really important aspects of women's health care. And I think it will be really helpful to get a sense of like as appointments start to ramp back up, what people should expect as they're coming into clinics, what might look a little different. Um, I was curious if there have been any recommendations from industry leadership groups like the American College of OBGYNs regarding how to address patient and clinic safety in the coming months. Certainly there has been, and all along throughout this pandemic and this crisis, we've been able to rely on really great information from ACOG, as well as other professional societies, such as the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. And they certainly provided us with useful information for how to address patient concerns throughout the ramp down period during these periods where we were asking patients to shelter in place or be safer at home in the interest of social distancing to reduce the spread of COVID. We, as an uh, obstetrics and gynecology clinic, were able to um, implement many of those recommendations and those guidelines as our services are essential for women. So we can't stop the progression of pregnancies and many of the conditions which we treat um, from a gynecologic perspective still progress. So it was very useful to have that information and to have that guidance. And they've continued to provide that guidance as we begin to reopen and reintroduce services for our patients to help us create a very safe environment and to ensure that we are able to provide high-quality health care for the women which we serve. So I'm curious, what has been um, different in your practice in the last several weeks? What do you think will continue to be different and, um, and why? So when I'm picturing going in for my next visit, um, you know, I'm kind of thinking, 
uh, should I be wearing a mask or um, will my visit be in person? Will it be over telehealth? Uh, can I bring someone with me if I if I want to have a support person with me? Those are sort of the questions that I'm curious about. All very relevant and good questions. So over the course of the past couple of months, what we were able to do actually almost overnight, we were able to modify some of our prenatal care practices. In such, we were able to institute telehealth. So for many of our OB patients, they will get a phone call prior to their scheduled visits from one of our nurse practitioners um, addressing the latest guidelines, the latest in terms of um, using personal protective equipment and coming to their visits, what they can expect in their visits, and what they could expect as they approach delivery and need services that are delivered in the hospital. We were able to address concerns about visitation policies and even testing. So that was, a, I think, a very positive thing that we were able to institute quite rapidly because we realized that patients were being inundated with a lot of information nationally, some of it locally. And so we wanted to make sure that our patients had the most up-to-date and information that was relevant to them specifically. So we instituted those telephone calls. We also modified the schedule um, with which we were seeing them for face-to-face -face visits. So to the extent possible, we were able to safely um, reduce the frequency of face-to-face -face visits. We were able to combine some of their uh, procedural visits, so ultrasounds, laboratory visits, we were able to do vital signs at those visits so that patients could reduce the number of times they needed to interface in the healthcare system, um, which in turn would reduce their risk of um, being infected or exposed to COVID, as well as decrease the traffic and volume um, in our clinics. So when those visits were, we were able to co-locate and um, co-provide those services that then allowed for our providers to follow up patients with a telephone visit or a video visit where it was appropriate. And then we did continue to see many of our patients face-to-face knowing that there are some things that just can't be done over the telephone or through a video visit. So we did have patients coming in, though less frequently, for blood pressure assessments, for um, exams to measure fundal measure height to ensure that their babies were growing appropriately, um, and also just making sure that they were ready at the latter stages of their pregnancies for delivery. But being able to have that telephone and telemedicine contact with patients allowed us to reduce the length of those face-to-face -face visits in the clinic, which was a necessary safety measure for all of us and for public health considerations. So giving birth is a, is a, a big experience regardless, right? And um, especially in a time where there's a lot of sort of uncertainty or questions about, you know, is it safe for me to be in a hospital? And um, as 
as we're looking at um, some restrictions relaxing a little bit, but still being extremely cautious and thoughtful about everybody's safety, um, what's it like to give birth right now? And I guess I'd like to start with, uh, let's start with the support person aspect. Um, can people bring with them uh, partners or doulas or other like support people? Yes, and yes. So, um, as you acknowledge, the birth experience is a very personalized, individual experience. It is one that people approach with quite a bit of expectation and anticipation. And we have tried to do all that we can to honor our patients' birth preferences um, and their plans in the midst of a pandemic which at times um, provided quite a bit of challenge because you know one of the, the recommendations that we had to reduce the spread of COVID was to implement social distancing and physical distancing measures. And those recommendations aren't necessarily compatible with plans to have uh, additional loved ones and support at the time of birth. What we were able to do is to preserve in our labor and delivery unit the ability to allow at least one support person for our patients. And, and in addition to that, if patients chose to have a doula, they were able to have that additional support with increased availability of testing. So we are now testing all of our patients who are admitted to labor and delivery that has provided a little bit more reassurance um, and help us, you know, to manage that whole process and the utilization of personal protective equipment, PPE, more um, appropriately and judiciously. So right now we are able to allow for support persons throughout the labor and delivery process as we're able to manage um, and have better um, understanding of what our local impact uh, from COVID has been, uh, we may see further easing of those visitation restrictions. In the clinic setting, we um, are constantly assessing our ability to allow additional support persons at visits. As we know, it is often important that our patients have the support that they need especially during this time period. And we are taking measures in the clinic to ensure that we have a safe um, environment for patients to come access care, that we are able to comply with social distancing and physical distancing measures um, from the point that you arrive into our clinic in our exam rooms to the point of exit to our clinic. So we are working diligently to put measures in place to ensure the safety of all of our patients and all those who, who work in our facilities as well. So yes, there will be some limits in the number of persons who are able to accompany our patients both on labor and delivery and in our clinics until we have a better, um, a, a better gauge on uh, the impact, especially as many of these measures are relaxed going forward. I'd like to talk a little bit about testing. So you mentioned that 
Um, everyone on labor de and delivery now as they come in is being tested. And I want to know a little bit about what happens if a test is positive. Does it change the um, process or the, the way that that birth is going to go at all? And then what happens afterwards? I'm curious to learn a little bit more about, you know, mom and baby safety in, in light of a positive COVID test. Sure. We are testing all of our patients who are admitted to labor and delivery, and we provide counsel uh, for patients prior to those tests. Um, we actually have our pediatricians on uh, standby as you know, patients may have the questions in their minds, just as you have um, posed to me, what happens if that test comes back positive. So we want to make sure that our patients understand the implications of the test. Um, and I'm happy to say that of all the testing that we've done, we've had very, very low numbers of positive cases. So should a patient test positive, it is quite informative for us because then we are able to um, appropriately and safely protect all that will be involved in the labor and the delivery process so that we can make sure everyone is donning appropriate personal protective equipment. Should the test come, become positive, we then have further conversations with our patient about how we best care for her newborn. The recommendations have been to separate moms from babies. However, we do allow shared decision-making in this process, and that is why it's critically important that we approach the patient with a multidisciplinary team so that she understands the risk um, and the benefits of separation versus um, having the baby be in close proximity. And depending on where she is with the information provided, I think there are uh, a range of, of measures we can take to ensure or to improve safety and decrease transmission um, in ways that she feels comfortable and tolerable. But the recommendation has been to separate moms and babies, but that's not an absolute. This is about shared decision-making and individualizing for what makes most sense for the patient, though we may have different recommendations. I'd like to pivot a little bit from pregnancy care, which we've talked about, um, and, and look at some other kind of routine aspects of women's health care. What happens right now if somebody needs a birth control refill or uh, it's time to switch out an intrauterine device or is interested in trying a new method of birth control or just wants to learn more about birth control? How are those, how do those appointments look right now? We know that contraception is very important for our patients and we have made contraception available for all of our patients throughout this process. So when a patient um, requires a renewal of her contraception prescription, we're able to um, dispense of that using telemedicine. So we do appropriate consultation for initiation of new contraceptive methods. We do provide, again, telemedicine, contraception, uh, telemedicine consults for contraception, and we make appointments readily available in our clinics 
to initiate um, those long-acting reversible contraceptive measures such as Nexplanons, the implantable contraception, as well as intrauterine devices. So we have prioritized um, contraceptive request, knowing that that is um, extremely important for a segment of our population, and we want to be able to fulfill those needs. With regard to other GYN services, I will say, you, you know, we're going, we're in a planning process, which um, has multiple phases, and in this, uh, the phase that we are currently in, we have prioritized gynecologic procedures and visits that we deem to be of high acuity or those of intermediate risk where if we delayed the care, it could cause harm or may cause harm with further deferments or delays. So we are prioritizing those high acuity conditions, conditions that um, may be suggestive of cancer or malignancy. We are um, evaluating patients who've had abnormal pap smears or dysplasia, making sure that they're able to get in to have those evaluations, which might include a colposcopy or LEAP procedure. We are bringing patients in the clinic if they have abnormal uterine bleeding or postmenopausal bleeding conditions, which um, may need further evaluations, may need that have procedures also tied to them. And also um, those patients who've had some sort of medical imaging that might be suggestive of chronic or deteriorating conditions um, or if, if the patient is now experiencing a more debilitating condition. So we are um, working through a, a queue of patients to make sure that those high acuity conditions are being addressed at this time. As we move on into latter phases over the next couple of months, we will expand the number of patients that we're able to see from those high acuity, intermediate acuity, and then eventually we'll be bringing in more routine preventative services down the line um, as we're able to accommodate more patients safely and as, um, as we monitor what's going on locally with um, the spread of COVID, COVID in this pandemic. So it's a very thoughtful, measured approach of who needs to come in now, who can um, be deferred for a few more weeks. We know that you know, COVID has had a tremendous impact on our country. We also know that many of our patients have conditions which are affecting them personally, and we want to make sure that we are addressing their concerns and balancing the public health concerns as well. So we, we have a very thoughtful approach to, to be able to create a safe environment for our patients so that they are able to come in to get the services that they need and that we're also able to respond to our patients in a, um, a very appropriate way through telemedicine to be able to triage who actually does need to be seen in the clinic and who can be evaluated and taken care of very well through telehealth services. 
So as we ramp back up and people start to head back in for more routine care, more non-emergent care, um, I know it's it's a, definitely sounds like your practices, your um, and the generalists have had a you know pretty consistent. There's a lot of conditions that you said are not going to wait for a pandemic to wrap up. Um, but people might start coming in again for well woman visits that had been deferred or other things. What is going to look a little different or feel a little different? I think in like walking in the door, will my temperature be screened? Um, should I plan on wearing a mask? Are there what things are going to happen a little bit differently maybe than the last time I visited? Jackie, I will tell you, it's been a lot to get used to. Um, I would say I've been practicing for quite some time and I'm used to wearing masks and I'm used to wearing a face shield. But, you know, that has always been if I'm doing a procedure in the hospital, in the operating room. It has been, uh, it has taken um, some getting used to, to having to wear those things in the clinic. So I think, you know, patients to, too, are not used to seeing everyone mask up, though it has become a part of our everyday life, even when you go to the grocery store. So we will let patients know that at this point, we are doing temperature screenings as they enter our buildings at UW Health. They will find that all of us um, are wearing masks. If we are going to be in close contact, we also have face shields in place. We ask that our patients also wear a face covering, and all of this is to ensure um, safety as best we possibly can, knowing how the coronavirus is transmitted and spread. They should also expect that there will be additional um, hand sanitizing stations, there will be um, tape and uh, spacing markers on the floor to uh, create those um, physical barriers, if you will, of you know six feet. And they may also note the use of plexiglass and other barriers to create safety as they enter our clinics. Our waiting rooms will be modified also to allow for appropriate physical distancing. So there are many changes afoot. Um, that will allow us to begin to open up services, which we so need to do and, and we want to be able to do for our patients. But the flow of things may look a bit different um, in this immediate period. I think it's really important to also ask, you know, we've listed all the things that are going to look and feel a little different and um, maybe not feel routine, but there are some very important aspects of this clinical care that are the same. And mainly, you are the same. Um, yes. The providers that you that people are coming to work with are still, you know, incredible. So what do you want to make sure people know is still going to be the case, even if um, our immediate environment feels a little bit different than usual? I want our patients to know, though you may not be able to see our smiles. Our smiles are still there. I hope that you're, you're able to see them in our eyes, that you know and that you can feel our warmth and our desire to care for you, to provide the best care that we possibly can. And so while we have had to modify 
our physical environment, we have had to modify the frequency with which we are able to see some of our patients. What we have not modified or compromised is the kind of high quality, thoughtful care that we are able to deliver and that we will continue to deliver. That is at the forefront of all of our minds to make sure even in these uncertain times when we all are experiencing increasing levels of anxiety about the unknown and when we are feeling change so rapidly around us, the constant that you can rely upon is that we are going to give you the best care that we possibly can at our UW-OBGYN clinics. Physical distancing and safety precautions are especially important for people undergoing treatment for gynecologic cancer who may be at higher risk for complications from COVID-19. UW gynecologic oncologist Dr. Lisa Barillette talked to me about how their clinic has prioritized safety throughout this pandemic and how they balance continuity of cancer treatments with minimizing the risk of COVID exposure. I kind of want to start um, from the very, very big picture and thinking about different industry leadership groups. So you are a gynecologic oncologist, um, so you work with cancer patients, and I'm wondering has the, the industry leadership group, the Society for Gynecologic Oncology, set any recommendations or suggestions regarding patient and clinical staff safety right now? Yes, definitely. They've, excuse me, they've been very active throughout the COVID-19 crisis, and I've been so impressed with how the leadership immediately pulled together a task force and initiated uh, within the first couple weeks, really, of the crisis. Um, several webinars that were incredibly helpful. And there's a group of about 10 people on that task force from all different regions in the U.S. It includes medical oncologists, gynecologic oncologists, uh, people who do a lot of clinical trial work, people who are in very highly impacted areas like New York and Houston, and people who are in more rural locations that have not been hit as hard. So it's a very comprehensive document. There's two big documents they released, one focused on uh, chemotherapy and clinical trials, and the other focused on the use of telemedicine. Can you tell me anything about what some of their recommendations looked like or how they're a little different from sort of your normal day-to-day? Sure. So uh, in terms of infusions and thinking about patients who are getting chemotherapy, the general considerations they've released are really common sense, but it's great to have them spelled out. For example, when choosing chemotherapy regimens for patients who are at a decision-making point, thinking about infusions that maybe are monthly rather than weekly, and thinking about ways to limit the patient's interaction with the clinic and minimize the time they need to be seen here in our cancer center. Um, Additionally, thinking about if they are eligible for a clinical trial, really focusing on treatment trials where we're trying an innovative therapy. Um, Many of our placebo-controlled trials, patients are not coming in for placebo infusions, and we've been allowed to unblind patients, which is very rare, but important, right? It's not um, okay for our patients to risk their health to come in if they're not getting an active drug. other recommendations are include more liberal use of immuno-boosting agents, so more specifically granulocyte count um, or white cell count boosters. 
um, to help patients be less immunosuppressed during cancer therapies. Um, and thinking about getting our patients, many of our patients get labs before all of their chemotherapy infusions. And if there's patients who can get labs closer to their home in a smaller outpatient clinic, rather than again coming into a tertiary care center, trying to coordinate that. So it sounds to me like a lot of the changes or suggestions right now are just how do we have people come in less often? How do we um, have them see fewer providers or combine care? Um, it just seems like, yeah. That is the message. Our patients are really vulnerable. Many of the patients we treat for GYN cancers are more than 65 years old. Many have other comorbid conditions. Some of the chemotherapies we give have pulmonary toxicity. Many patients have baseline pulmonary or cardiovascular disease. And put that on top of immunosuppression and frequent hospital visits, and you have this perfect storm of patients who are incredibly vulnerable. And really, I think that's why the SGO also um, released some recommendations about telehealth and using remote visits um, more frequently and talking about ways to troubleshoot that and what kinds of patients might be ideal for telehealth. I was curious about that. Um, what kinds of visits would translate well enough to be able to do them remotely? We have been doing some chemotherapy visits remotely. We're trying to stagger that. So patients who are coming in maybe will have a telehealth visit every other cycle. And these are patients who are in general doing well, who are experienced with chemotherapy, so it's not their first infusion, who are um, not working on a number of medical problems that we're helping manage. Um, and what we do is have, our nurses have been incredibly helpful in making this work, but identifying patients who we think might be eligible for remote visits and having them get their labs a day prior to chemotherapy close to where they live, and then doing a telehealth visit, reviewing any symptoms, reviewing their laboratory studies, going over all pertinent health stuff over the phone. And then when they walk into the cancer center the next day, instead of coming to the laboratory, then to our clinic, and then going to their infusion chair, they can make one stop at infusion. That really limits contact, certainly uh, limits the use of PPE, and it's just fewer points. It's even just fewer door handles that, that they're touching, right? It's just fewer um, points of interaction. I wanted to ask a little bit about PPE. Um, so we've, I think as a society, we hear about a lot about it um, from the medical care provider side, you know, making sure that our doctors and our teams have enough equipment. And I'm curious now, as patients are coming in, um, are there recommendations for, you know, patients wearing masks or gloves or what kind of safety things are um, patients being recommended to do? So the two biggest things that are currently in active at UW Health, and this may change even before this podcast is out there, but right now everyone who walks in the hospital has to wear a mask. Um, and if you cannot wear a mask for any reason, you cannot come in this hospital or clinic. Um, and the other thing is for a long time, not, well, it felt like a long time, we no visitors were allowed and right now it's one one visitor with an adult patient. Obviously, end-of-life situations or other very special circumstances um, allow more visitors before a typical chemotherapy visit or outpatient visit. It would be one adult visitor with each patient. I, I feel like for a while, um, certain kinds of visits were maybe postponed, taken off the books for that, you know, the last eight weeks or so. Um, has that, I guess, has that been the case for... Uh, 
patients who come into your clinic, it seems like cancer treatment's one of those things that you kind of don't want to pause, but I'm curious if things have been moved around much. We have made an effort to reduce the volume of our surveillance patients. So those are patients who have no known active cancer, but who are monitoring for symptoms, um, signs and symptoms of the potential return of their cancer. And there's algorithms for how these patients should be followed. Ovarian cancer patients, for example, are typically seen every three months for the first two years after completing their treatments. Um, So those patients are, you know, this pandemic certainly is going to last more than three months. So there um, certainly been some missed visits. Uh, What we've been doing with those folks is if they have absolutely no symptoms, feeling great, we just are pushing those visits back. Um, at least through the stay-at-home order. Uh, And we have been able to successfully do telehealth with a number of those patients who have, we don't think, any symptoms that require a physical exam, but have questions or concerns that we think could be dealt with remotely. That's been the biggest thing. I get the sense that things are starting to ramp back up a little bit in some areas. You know, for the last several weeks, the message has definitely been Don't come in to seek care unless it seems like a real emergency. Um, And even for me, it's been kind of hard to know, like, what's worth bringing up? This weird thing is happening. Should I be getting in touch with my healthcare teams? Um, And from your perspective, what kinds of concerns or issues, especially in the realm of gynecologic oncology, should people get in touch with their teams for right away? Just call your doctor if this is happening. Absolutely. Um, so for any patient receiving chemotherapy, of course, the same things. And I can understand a patient with a fever <laughs> might say, oh, I should stay home. But we still want to hear from our patients with particularly those getting chemotherapy if they're having any signs of systemic illness. It's true. The right advice might be to stay at home, but we need to hear what they're going through, what symptoms they're having, and help walk them through that. So that's one example. In terms of new patients who aren't getting treatment, the things that we really uh, want to hear about are women who are postmenopausal and having vaginal bleeding. Um, that can be pretty subtle and easy to ignore, especially at a time when you've been told to stay at home. But we definitely know that that can be a sign of uterine cancer, and we want patients to seek care for that as soon as they can. And um, in terms of Ovarian cancer, those symptoms are so subtle, but I know there's patients out there who are having abdominal symptoms, gastrointestinal changes, pelvic pressure, abdominal bloating, um, who have chosen not to seek care because they're not sure what's going on. And I suspect we will see a wave of patients um, in the next few weeks as things open up more um, who've been having symptoms for quite some time and have just um, understandably chosen not to seek care. At some point, I just want to really say that I think it's very important and the reason that Wisconsin has done relatively well in this pandemic is because in general, people are listening. And I think people who are healthy and don't need to be in the hospital have done an amazing job of staying at home. And I think people have been incredibly supportive of patients who do need to be here and the healthcare workers who need to be here. And I feel very lucky that we live in a state where there has been great support Um, where there haven't, at least in our community, there haven't been PPE shortages in the hospital. And I feel that that's really heightened our ability to do our jobs well. So as people start to come in again, um, how how can they get ready for what's going to look a little bit different? And and what are the important parts of their care that are still going to be the same? 
I think allowing more time just to navigate through the hospital and clinic is really important. Um, just time to park and get in and make sure your temperature is checked to make sure you have your mask, that you have a moment to hand sanitize. Um, I think that's a really good idea. Right now, um, it is possible to get food, like lim limited food at the cafeteria, but we're really trying to limit people sitting there. So we're asking people to eat outside of the facility. So you might want to think about packing <laughs> a snack or two that might be different and be prepared um, to eat that before or after, before you come in the building or after you leave the building. Um, I think the heart and soul of our hospital feels very much the same. I am incredibly used to seeing people in masks all the time. At first, I found that very disorienting and almost alienating, and now it's just um, part of life. So I, I bet a few patients who haven't been here are going to be a little overwhelmed seeing every single person in the building with a mask on and many people with face shields, um, hair covers, et cetera. So... Um, be ready for that. But I think that um, we are providing the same excellent care. I love seeing my patients. I can't wait until they can come in without any concern. Um, and I know it will be a while, but I can't wait to really see my patients' faces again when we don't need masks. Um, but in the interim, I think we've been really lucky in that we've been able to do the things we do well. Our nurses have worked tirelessly throughout this pandemic, our medical assistants, our phlebotomists, our genetic counselors continue to work. Um, we're all here and we're all doing our best to keep, um, keep doing the things we know we do well. UW-Madison is a research center, which means many patients who work with our faculty physicians have an opportunity to be part of a wide variety of women's health clinical research. Many of our research projects were paused or scaled back over the last couple months, but clinical research chair Dr. Dave Kushner told me about how clinical research studies are slowly opening back up and the crucial safety precautions our research teams are taking to protect participants. I wanted to ask you a little bit about clinical research, um, since you are our vice chair for clinical research in the department. and. Um, what happened over the last several weeks? How was was there kind of a pause on um, research projects, or were they able to adapt to phone methods? Tell me how research has gone. So, like everything else, everything has been tiered. That's sort of been a common way of thinking about the response from every aspect. So, when it comes to research, what I mean by that is quickly we determined different tiers of research in terms of the importance of the research for the patient in particular, and then the risk of the research in terms of the patient or the research staff getting COVID. So for example, at the very beginning in the heart of this, when there's a ton of uncertainty and we didn't know what was coming at us, for research to continue, it needed to be incredibly important. So for example, our cancer patients who are on experimental therapies that we think might truly benefit them and they're getting those therapies, that would be just cruel and inhumane to stop those. So we wanted to make sure we had ways to continue those sorts of treatment therapies. Um, it, research on COVID. So it's really important that at this time we don't stop all our research so we can't find ways to prevent and cure this disease. And then at the same time, if we're going to during that time keep research going, we needed to really protect our research staff. So we tried everything we could to keep research staff at home. We were very lucky in the fact that the National Institute of Health, as well as state and local agencies, um, relaxed many of the rules 
on um, being able to consent patients over, you know, um, telehealth. And um, so that you didn't, so they, so people didn't have to come in just because there was a rule that said the only reason the patient could do X is if a research assistant is next to them in the room for no good reason. And so a lot of that kind of moved out of the way and we could keep our research coordinators home and safe and talking to patients via phone and Skype and um, sending things through the mail and through electronic means. So that that was sort of phase one. And now we're really into phase two, which is, um, there, are, there are other critical research that needs to continue for all the other conditions we take care of. And stopping them is not really helping our society in any way. So, so now we're starting to reopen studies that are sort of the next tier of importance um, need to happen and can happen in a way where we're not putting either the patient or our research team at risk for getting COVID. And so particularly when we can keep people at home, the, the research staff, and we can keep things moving that way. Um, but we're, we're having to come up with new logistics and workarounds for almost all the research that we're doing, but it's starting to happen. And I think that this phase is exciting because I think that takes care of probably over half of the research that needs to happen in clinical research. And then hopefully there'll be a next phase where we could open everything back up. So in terms of studies right now, are you able to take in new patients if they're you know, eligible for a study, if they're interested in participating in research? Yeah, so it depends. So, so each of the things I'm mentioning, so in this next year that we're in now, every single study has to go through a approval process again. So let's say it was an open study for a drug for uh, preeclampsia in our pregnant patients. And it was, uh, but, but it was something that did get closed down because it, there was no way to do it safely before. And now we're, we've come up with a way that we believe is safe to do that. That has to be approved by the university authorities to make sure that it really is safe, that we're going to be doing everything the way it should be done. And as every single study goes through that, it needs the like creating the new process, getting it approved, and then opening that process. So we're doing that. Right now, there are studies that are opening. So every week or so, there's a new study opening, both in terms of cancer and non-cancer um, gynecologic and obstetrical studies. I think patients should feel very, very comfortable being a part of research again because of a couple things. One is we have been lucky in our community that the, the response has been outstanding and our leaders have done a great job, our public health leaders um, and local leaders, making sure that we've contained this virus and found ways to keep everybody safe. And we've really successfully done that to as high a level as we possibly can. And also the, um, the regulatory bodies and the university and the um, review boards are taking this incredibly seriously. So if a study is opening, if, you're, if somebody's approaching you about a study that is, is happening right now, it's only happening because it has been fully vetted for safety in the COVID area, era. Nothing has snuck through and is uh, not quite safe with COVID. Everything has been checked. So I really want patients to feel comfortable with the fact that it's been checked and double checked and triple checked that they're not gonna be at higher risk. If there's any increased risk, it will be mentioned very, very clearly to them. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can listen to the Women's Health Cast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. 
And of course, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing, rate and review us in your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you'd like to learn about. Thanks for listening.